Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's early May 2020, and in the midst of this surreal, ongoing, perhaps even seemingly never-ending crisis, uh, there may be one thing to be cheerful about um, in this weird spring of 2020. Our, our cities are certainly cleaner. Our air is better. Uh, wildlife is returning to our cities. Uh, we aren't driving. And as the global capitalist economy grinds to a halt, it's possible, I say possible, that uh, our environmental crisis might be over. Uh, Kate Aronoff is a staff writer at the New Republic. Uh, she's the author of last year, a co-author, sorry, of last year's A Planet to Win, While We Need a, a Green New Deal. And uh, she has a book coming out uh, next year uh, called Overheated. Uh, Kate, am I being um, ridiculously optimistic about uh, being cheerful of the uh, the environmental consequences of the crisis? Well, first off, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, I think it is not the take that I would have uh, is is to see this moment as kind of a hopeful time. Um, and you know, I, I've seen a lot of the stories about um, kind of nature returning, clear canals in Venice, um, mostly through sort of viral tweets. Um, but you know, I, I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful for this moment. I would not point to uh, what are likely to be momentary reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and pollutions is necessarily the cause of that, right? Um, I think, you know, this is not something I think any any climate activist worth their salt would, would uh, be, it's not a situation anybody <laughs> was hoping for, certainly. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe we can talk more about this in a bit, but what is helpful for me about this, you know, scary sort of terrifying moment uh, is more so that, you know, every lie we've been told about how economies work, um, particularly, you know, in the United States, places like the UK, um, is really being just thrown out the window, right? The idea that we don't have enough money to spend when there's a big crisis at hand, that, um, you know, we, we need to sort of tighten our belts and that the public sector just can't, you know, can't get its act together to do something really big. Uh, those are really being thrown out the window. Um, and so I think that's a sort of interesting opportunity here for climate more so than, you know, the um, clearer streets, which, you know, I've been going on more runs than I, than I ever have. And it's nice to not be sort of choked in smog and in New York, but uh, I think, you know, we should think a little longer term. Kate, um, when you, look at the reasons for our climate crisis. You're an authority on this. You've written two or three books on it, and you spend a lot of your time writing about it as a journalist. 
uh, and the reasons for today's health crisis. Are there similarities? Yeah, I mean, there's really direct overlap in, in one sense, right? In that, you know, the a microbiologist I spoke to uh, several months ago now when the coronavirus was first spreading around around Wuhan uh, said, you know, the, the, the state of, of what we know about uh, the relationship between climate change and infectious disease is that is, is, is something like, you know, the relationship between hurricanes and climate change as of, you know, 2004, when, when, um, uh, as of, you know, when, when Hurricane Katrina struck. Um, and that we can't say for certain whether the novel coronavirus that we're now obviously dealing with was the result of the climate crisis, but we can say with some real certainty that the climate crisis will make more of these types of things possible, right? And so we've seen the rise of things like Zika virus, uh, malaria cases are sort of spreading to parts of the world that they wouldn't otherwise uh, in, in more kind of normal temperate conditions. Uh, there, there, you know, are going to be more epidemics, if not pandemics, in, in a warming world. So in that sense, the connection is, is very, um, very neat. I also think, you know, the way, and I'm, again, speaking to you from New York, um, the way that governments are dealing with this, I think, is a, a sort of scary preview for um, what could, and I don't think is inevitable, but but certainly what could be uh, the, the situation in which, you know, a more radically warming world, uh, the, the impacts of that play out on, right? And so in the wealthiest country which has ever existed, the United States, um, our uh, public sphere after decades of disinvestment, after, you know, a real pessimism about what the government can do uh, and, and sort of trusting that the, that the market can, um, can, can really meet all of our needs uh, efficiently um, is just failing to respond to this crisis, right? I mean, we have failed uh, in a sense. Over 60,000 people, I think, by now have died. Um, and that is uh, shameful. I think, you know, very, very bluntly. I mean, the, the UK has uh, also had its its own sort of troubled response um, to this crisis, but I think we need a, a much more broadly resilient society. Um, and this should be a real wake-up call, I think, for, for the kind of systems and uh, institutions that are in place to deal with, um, you know, what we know will be a crisis filled with, century, with a, a, what we know will be a century filled with crisis. Kate, would it also be fair to say that there are similarities in terms of the casualties of the crisis? We know that the casualties of the health crisis very much skewed to poor people, to racial minorities. The same seems to be true of the impact of global warming on the world. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, the, the thing that's different about, about this coronavirus crisis from the climate crisis is that, you know, the United States is really being hit in a way that's, that's unavoidable. Um, and so far, uh, not, not always, but I, but I think um, so far the, the real impacts of the climate crisis, and, you know, we've warmed the world by about one degrees uh, to this point have been concentrated in the global South. Um, and have had the certainly the most casualties in the global south. People are being pushed off their land already, dealing with you know unbearably hot temperatures. 
Um, and we've had moments of, of, of climate crisis, obviously, in the United States, but um, it's been something that policymakers can sort of not think about um, in, in, uh, in, a, in a, you know, pressing sort of way. Uh, and that's impossible right now, right? You know, the United States is dealing with this. We have tens of thousands of people dying. Um, this is an unavoidable crisis. Um, but we're seeing, you know, the same sort of distributional inequalities here that we see all the time with a climate crisis, right? Uh, the deaths are concentrated overwhelmingly um, in African-American communities and communities of color. Um, people's access to healthcare is a, is a big determinant of, of you know, the kinds of treatment they receive and, um, you know, whether they seek treatment at all, if they don't have healthcare and don't want to walk away with, you know, a, a bill worth thousands of dollars and rack up a bunch of medical debt. Um, and uh, relevant to the climate crisis, I mean, we, we know that uh, a person's race is, is, you know, the biggest predictor in the U.S. of whether they live near pollution uh, and asthma any number of other pre-existing conditions that come from living near, um, you know, whether that's a coal-fired power plant or a site of industrial waste, um, those make people more vulnerable uh, to to the climate crisis. And so I think a lot of the same dynamics are playing out. And yeah, again, I would say what's, what's, what's sort of different about this is that um, it, the White House sort of governors are aren't able to ignore it really in the same way that they, they have been so far able to ignore uh, the climate crisis. Talk to me a little bit, Kate, about the stimulus. Uh, the government, as you suggested earlier, has suddenly found four trillion, five trillion, maybe six or seven trillion dollars to throw at the coronavirus crisis. Uh, before this crisis, we were told there was no money. So I have two questions for you. Where exactly is this money coming from? We've talked about this in some detail in the show, at least in your mind. And secondly, does this speak of the potential in the longer term for the government to find money for the climate crisis? Yeah, two very good uh, questions. Um, so uh, the first question, where is, where is the money coming from? I mean, in the United States, this is a very simple question, right? We, uh, so much of the world's debt is denominated in dollars, near the global, have the global reserve currency. Um, we can just print the money. <laughs> I mean, this has been something that's, uh, you know, been talked about in, uh, in in kind of the circles around monetary theory for a long time. Is that a good or a bad it. thing? Though? <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's a condition, right? Uh, it, it is just a, the way, you know, the economy is structured, um, that uh, the, the US is able to spend as much money as it needs to, um, to deal with a crisis. I think that can be, uh, you know, that's obviously from, from a sort of global perspective, not, um, necessarily ideal. I think in, in sort of long-term horizon, we would want a, a world economy, which is less dollarized in which the U S fed does not have sort of de facto power over, um, uh, over the, our global financial infrastructure. Um, but for now, I, I mean, I think we are seeing it. And, you know, this isn't unique to the United States. The uh, governments in Europe are finding plenty of money to deal with um, to deal with this crisis uh, in a way that they had not been willing to spend before. Um, but I think, you know, I, I uh, will do the same thing that I think a lot of folks in, in the kind of um, modern monetary theory world will do, which is point to um, a book by John Maynard Keynes, um, 
how to pay for the war, right? Which was not, you know, about where the money comes from. It's about what is the sort of collection of real resources that we have available. Um, and there's no shortage of that, right? I mean, the problem is not that we will um, rack up a sort of deficit, which is large in absolute terms. Um, that's really not the problem. The problem is, are we meeting the needs of the economy? Um, and I think, you know, to get to the sort of second part of your question, um, that will be the fight that will be had. I mean, we've already seen in the United States and, and elsewhere um, sort of hints that governments who are, you know, perfectly willing to spend now, our Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin um, has said that, uh, you know, the deficits don't matter. This isn't the time to talk about, about that. Um, but I think, you know, in a year or two, hopefully once we have a vaccine, once social distancing measures are lifted, um, the real danger is that we'll see a snapback um, to austerity and to, you know, as, as, as Barack Obama did in 2010, um, saying, you know, we need to tighten our belts. We can't, you know, just be spending money um, irresponsibly. We need to, uh, you know, get the economy back on track uh, and, and, and sort of cut spending in these sort of dramatic ways. And that's the exact opposite uh, of, of what we need to do for the climate crisis. And so there have been proposals and um, proposals here to, uh, to to use this as an opportunity when we have this sort of different relationship uh, to spending um, to push for a green recovery, right? And so to not do the sort of classic thing that governments do um, in response to, to crisis generally, which is to just fuel growth by any means necessary, really, um, without thinking about what kind of growth that is, without thinking about the types of economic activities that we want, you know, just sort of giving free reign the private sector to go out and you know invest in whatever you will, but to really provide some guidance around around what that what that looks like um, in ways that are not you know dissimilar from um, the New Deal itself, and 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 are really making claims on the kind of world we want on on the other end of this. Uh, so massive investments in green infrastructure, um, something like a, a federal job guarantee. Um, along the lines of, you know, the sort of public works programs that we saw after the Great Depression in the United States. Um, and to really think about, you know, how do we, if, if this is a crisis, uh, certainly a peacetime crisis, unlike anything like most people living have seen in their lifetimes, um, we are not going back to normal in any in any sense. And so what is the, the kind of um, economy we we want on the other side, what does that look like? And and to really have a conversation about that, which is taking seriously the fact that we are living through this other massively pressing crisis of, of climate change. Um, and so really thinking about how to, how to construct a, a, you know, not just a lower carbon society, but one that's also fairer and more democratic. As I said earlier, you're the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Um, today in, in May 2020, the uh, U.S. 2020 uh, presidential election is beginning to warm up, if that's the right word. Uh, given that Biden will be representing the Democratic Party, how do you see Biden on the environment? Will he embrace any kind of Green New Deal, or will the environment become a footnote when he presents his agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot, a lot remains to be seen uh, about what 
the Biden administration will look like. I, you know, I did not support Biden in the primaries, um, but uh, he is the presumptive nominee. And I think there are climate groups like the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats um, who have been pushing for a Green New Deal, um, which really want, you know, a Biden administration to take the climate crisis seriously. And we've seen some movement toward that. Uh, you know, he has seemed to, you know, express a willingness to sort of bring on, uh, at least hear ideas from, from people who are um, uh, more sympathetic to a Green New Deal. I think the real test will be who he hires on his staff, right? Um, and, and that will, you know, flow from how seriously he takes this. Um, well, you're the insider, Kate. You're the staff writer at the New Republic. You, uh, you, you're based in New York, but I, I, I know you look very, you're always looking at DC. What do you expect? Do you, do you think that Biden will shift to the left on, 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 on the environment or will he remain the, in some people's mind, at least, the, the frustrating centrist, the Uncle Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the fate, and I, I, I truthfully don't know. I mean, based on who he hired in, uh, who was surrounding him as vice president, um, those people have gone on to work for the fossil fuel industry, right? The people who advised him on energy issues, um, by and large, went to work or take large checks through academic institutions uh, from oil and natural gas companies. Uh, so if he really wants to bring the old bang up, bring the old gang back together to, you know, recreate essentially the Obama administration, a return to normal, quote unquote, um, he will be bringing back people who work for the fossil fuel industry who will not be friendly um, to a Green New Deal and might, you know, say we'll invest some token amount of money in renewables, um, provide some loan guarantees, maybe a, you know, slightly better version of, of the kind of green stimulus we got um, as part of the response to the last uh, the last economic crisis in 2008, 2009. Uh, but I wouldn't expect it to be a big focus if, you know, who he surrounds himself are the people who he surrounded himself with last time. So, you know, rightfully so, uh, people who are pushing for the Green New Deal are pushing for a different set of personnel um, for him to surround himself with different people and really to push this to the top. I don't think, you know, part of, part of why I'm hesitating is a lot of the evidence we have right now uh, is like what's on their websites, what's made it into kind of, you know, Biden's platform, which I just don't think is a terribly good uh, signal for what he's actually going to do in office, right? It's it's not so hard to kind of cut and paste a couple of paragraphs from, you know, Bernie Sanders's or Jay Inslee's or Elizabeth Warren's climate plan and put them on your website. It's a very different matter to actually, you know, hire people who are capable of and interested in the real fight it will take to implement any of those things. Um, okay. And so, okay. You know, what, yeah. what, what do you make of the collapse in the price of oil? Obviously, in some ways, <laughs> it's a reflection of uh, the, the closing down of, of the global economy. But I've heard people argue that it actually may represent a, a deeper structural crisis in the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it absolutely represents a, a deeper crisis. I mean, before the coronavirus had really even touched oil markets, uh, oil and gas companies in the U.S., mostly in, in shale drilling, had lost access to capital markets, right? The whole sector um, of shale drilling had been created 
basically through the monetary policy response to the last crisis. So you had very cheap credit, very low interest rates, uh, which made it possible to finance these types of extraction, which were just too um, too costly to, to finance before, right? Fracking is a very capital intensive process, takes huge upfronts, upfront investments. Uh, and, and, you know, most oil majors by, you know, 2007 or so just had not been willing to fund it. And so um, they had always, these, these companies had always been uh, sort of fueled by this this really cheap debt and this really sort of exceptional situation of a certain price of oil, uh, a, a certain, um, you know, a certain kind of level of interest rates, a certain, you know, amount of access to Wall Street funding. Uh, and that had started to really erode even as early as like 2018, right? And so um, the oil and gas sector had seen a rash of bankruptcies in late 2019, um, before anyone was talking about COVID-19. Uh, and this was something that, you know, they were, oil, oil companies were worried about. And you already had oil majors, like, you know, the Exxons and Chevrons of the world writing down their investments in U.S. shale. Um, and so now I think what I've seen the oil industry trying to do is say this is all a crisis, this is all uh, the result of this demand shock, which, you know, that's obviously a huge part of it. But there were real, you know, deeper, deeper uh, problems for the oil industry before that. And I think, you know, demand will probably pick back up. I don't think this is the end of oil necessarily, um, but I do think it's a sign of of things to come. And there's just not there's not money to, to be made and not really profits to be made anymore um, in shale drilling. And, and I think that, you know, is is a really uh, interesting place for. Yeah, um, it's, it's a really yeah. interesting place. And I hope it, it, it's one that you'll go to in, in your upcoming book, Overheated. It, mm-hmm. uh, it may indeed be news which, excusing this silly pun, will warm up. <laughs> the hearts of some climate activists. Finally, Kate, I always ask everybody who comes on the show this at the end to uh, keep everyone warm or at least intellectually at least stimulated during the crisis as we're all stuck at home. Uh, is there a book or two that people should be reading to familiarize themselves with the climate crisis, what it is and what to do next? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, would actually suggest two books that uh, are a little further removed from the climate crisis itself. Um, I think one would be just because of where I am and, you know, what's going on as uh, Fear City by um, Kim Phillips Fine, the historian uh, looking at the fiscal crisis in, in New York in the 1970s, which, you know, I think is she very rightly points out kind of was a testing ground for the sorts of, um, austerity regimes we would see for um, the next several decades. And I think, you know, in thinking about how governments deal with crises is, is a really good um, and timely, timely read. Um, at this point, I think the other book I would recommend is, is The Value of Everything by um, Mariana Mazzucato, um, which in this moment where we're, we are really rethinking uh, the you know, what is valuable in society, um, what kinds of work is valuable and, and necessary to keep um, keep the world running. Uh, it's, it's a nice, uh, uh, I think, a good a good thing to kind of refocus what's on what's important uh, and kind of what the uh, what sort of economy we want on the other side of this. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.